Good morning, everybody, and happy Easter to you. Thank you so much for being here today. we got some celebrating to do. First and foremost, the fact that our God is alive, that the tomb is empty. We have hope. We have joy. We have purpose. We have peace because of what Jesus has done. Let's celebrate that together right now. I'm alive because you're alive. Here we go. I'm alive because you're alive. I am free. There's a step be free. I'm alive. I'm alive in you, Jesus. I'm yours because you said it so. I am love and you won't let go.
Happy day. Amen. You know, um, many of us are uh, list makers. Uh, there's something incredibly satisfying, at least for me, about checking things off on a to-do list. And with this, and I, I have one every week when I'm planning worship. I have a Sunday morning checklist to make sure that it, you know everything's done. And this past week with Good Friday, of course, two services, I had two checklists, so it was like double the satisfaction. It really was. And I would, I would love to share with you a list of things that happen to us when we say yes to Jesus. 
And this is one of the most important lists, and only a partial list. We're just scratching the surface here of, of, of what we gain, what we benefit when we say yes to Jesus. First of all, one of the things, you are redeemed from slavery to sin. You are reconciled to God. You are forgiven of all of your sins. You are adopted by God. Check. You become a child of God. Check. You're accepted by God. You are united to Jesus. You're brought close to God. You're delivered from the power of darkness. That's one of my favorite verses in Colossians 1. That God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Check. (laughs) You receive citizenship in heaven. You are a member of the family of God. How about that list? And and that's just getting started. If you're following Christ this morning, I want you to stand firm on those facts. If you're not following him yet, today could be your happy day for all of eternity. I praise God for what he's done. And this, that is the name of this, the next song that we are about to do. Let's praise God for what he's done. the hill of Calvary, my Savior bled for me, my Jesus set me free. Look at the wounds that give me life, grace flowing from His side, no greater sacrifice. What He's done, what He's done. the glory and the honor to the Son. My sins, my sins are forgiven. My future is heaven. I praise God for what He's done. Sing, sing. All the worship we can 
praising God. We're going to take a moment right now and greet the folks around us. Uh, I encourage you to uh, make your way across the room and uh, welcome someone here that you haven't met yet. And I just want to uh, ask you to just ask this question. What are you thankful for today? Doesn't That doesn't just have to happen around Thanksgiving, right? What are you praising God for today? What are you thankful for today? Take a few moments to greet those around you and we'll continue with our worship in just a minute.
Okay, folks, let's make our way back to our seats. Love watching y'all connect. shaking. Sing it with us now. I won't be shaking. I won't be moved. My God is faithful. His promise is true. So I There's no mountain too 
pray together, church. Father, we thank you so very much for this weekend and what it represents. And we thank you so, so much for the risen Christ, that the tomb is empty, and that we can have life, real life in Jesus. Thank you so much for all you have done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can have a seat, and I invite you to turn your attention to the screens real quick before Pastor Gary comes up.
All right. Good morning, everybody. Aren't you glad it's Sunday? The Resurrection Day, the greatest day in all history. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at and we're going to be talking, obviously, about the resurrection, uh, its significance, its importance, the implications of it. But I want to begin, and I know a lot of you already know much of my story, but I, I feel like uh, it's important just for context for anyone who's not familiar, and I just feel like it leads into what we're talking about today uh, to share with you a little bit of my own story. I grew up in a home, uh, perhaps like some of you, I grew up in a home where I was con- uh, encouraged to believe in Jesus as a small child. Uh, we were in church every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, and every Wednesday evening. Uh, we were... It was just I was immersed in a culture where believing in Jesus, believing in the Bible, uh, believing in the resurrection, just it was all around me. It was where I lived. It was what I breathed. It was what I was fed. It was everything. And, um, and then I went through middle school, high school. I made a commitment to Christ as a young child, uh, kind of a childlike commitment to Jesus, which I think is very, very valid. Uh, I think a lot of people, that's when they come to know Jesus. But in my middle school, my high school years, I went through a time that was very, very difficult for me. went through some very, very uh, intense bullying that was very humiliating. And this went on for a number of years. Uh, And with that, I just began to feel more and more lonely, more and more empty, more and more angry. And I began to look for things that would kind of numb that pain. And so... uh, uh, but then when I was 16 years old, uh, I went to this conference with a group of young people, and I saw in these young people a love for Jesus. I saw in these young people friendship that was just really attractive to me. I saw in them a joy, a peace, a hope that I didn't have that I really wanted for myself. And so as a 16-year-old, I just prayed a prayer or something like this. I said, Lord Jesus, I need you. I have made a total, complete mess of my life. I have sinned against you. And I just ask you to come into my life, to change me, make me the kind of person that you want me to be. And, and I had made a commitment like this before, acknowledging Jesus as my Lord and Savior, uh, asking him to forgive me. But I felt like I needed to make that fresh, renewed commitment to Jesus at age 16. So at what point I was truly saved, I, I'm not sure, but I have no doubt that God has saved me. Uh, you know, after that, I had this incredible zeal for God. I had an incredible zeal for God's Word. It was like as a 16-year-old who did not read, <laughs> who didn't like reading, I was always in the third reading group as a kid growing up. I was one of those kids who really struggled in school uh, in elementary school, middle school, and into high school. But I started to read the Bible voraciously. And it was like the Bible came alive to me. And I began to talk with my friends about my commitment to follow Jesus. And I began to tell some of my friends that I used to party with that I wasn't going to be partying anymore. I said, I made a decision to follow Jesus, and I'd like to encourage you to do the same thing. And uh, it was really cool because several of my friends did. I think some of them felt like they had no choice. Someone once said I was kind of pushy. I can't remember something like that. But uh, but I was I was just there was this zeal, this uh, sometimes maybe a little bit uh, selfish, uh, a little bit prideful, uh, a little bit pushy. But um, but still, it was just it's a 16 year old trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus. And so 
you know, I was involved in some projects where I would go different places. Uh, you know, I spent a summer in 1976 in Estes Park, Colorado, doing evangelism, street evangelism there, and just had some really cool experiences. But it was when I got in college, I went to school at the University of Central Arkansas. Uh, it was while I was in college that my faith began to be challenged in a way that I'd never really expected and was really unprepared for. I mean, I say I was unprepared for it. I had been introduced to uh, a, a person by the name of Francis Schaefer. Anybody know who Francis Schaefer is, was? Okay, a few of you. Uh, he's been dead for a few years. He was a, um, an American theologian, uh, very, very influential in North America, but also in Europe uh, in a big way, especially among young uh, college age or young adults. Incredible impact in the lives of people. Uh, it wrote a number of books, very, very powerful books. So I'd been introduced to, to Schaefer, Francis Schaefer. So I had some ammunition when I went away to, to college, but not a lot. And it was when I was in college, I began to hear things kind of like this. And you know, one of the things I heard is, well, you can't really trust the New Testament. It's just a collection of stories that were told and retold, embellished, told and retold, embellished, told and retold, and then written down hundreds of years later. Anybody ever hear anything like that? And I was kind of hearing this. And I began to ask myself this question, why, why, why did I believe in Jesus? Why did I believe in God? Why did I believe the Bible? Why did I believe there was an afterlife? Why didn't I believe that you simply you die and that's it, you're done? You're just dirt after that. Never another thought. Never another moment of any kind of experience. Why did I believe in anything? As opposed to what I had been trained and taught and encouraged to believe as a young person. And so for me, I began to really wrestle. And I began to read more. And I continued to read the Bible. Uh, I did study comparative religion somewhat. And I'm not. By, I'm not an authority by any means, but I did study comparative religions. I, I, uh, but then I began to read books like Mere Christianity. don't know if any of y'all are familiar with that by C.S. Lewis. Uh, back a few years ago, uh, Christianity Today, they put together a list of the 50 most influential books written since World War II. And number three on that list was, was uh, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. was very powerful, really, really helpful for me. Number four on the list was The God Who Is There. Uh, by Francis Schaeffer uh, was very helpful for me after I read it the third time. Uh, seriously. I mean, I, it's like I had to read it three times to really begin to grasp and grapple with what he was saying because I just, you know, I'm, the guy is like brilliant. You know, he's this theologian. I was just a, a college student still learning and stuff. And not that I'm brilliant today and I wasn't then. But anyway, I mean, I wasn't brilliant then. not brilliant now. I'm smarter now than I used to be, hopefully a little wiser but, you know, I, I read through that. That was helpful. I read a few books uh, that you may have heard of who, that aren't on the list that were somewhat helpful. And another book, it's number 13 on that list, uh, is written by a guy named Josh McDowell. I at least know Rich knows the, the book. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Any of you all familiar with that? It was very, very helpful for me. What was really helpful about Evidence That Demands a Verdict for me is because he approaches uh, a lot of this from a point of view of examining the New Testament as historically reliable documents, which really, really uh, resonated with me because I was majoring in unemployment at that time. 
You know what unemployment, you know what majoring in unemployment is? It's, you're majoring in a field that nobody's going to hire you to do, you know. Uh, but I was majoring in history. I loved history, and I was uh, I had a couple of profs who just really lit a fire in me to this love for, for history. In fact, one of them, I gave him all these cassette tapes by Josh McDowell trying to get, <laughs> trying to, to get him to believe. And he was like, he was listening, and we, were, we would have exchanges in class. And, well, I had exchanges with all my professors in class. But, uh, but his, mine with his were always, they were always pleasant, okay? And, uh, but uh, I began to really wrestle with it, this. And I, I, I want to come back to that in a few minutes, in a few minutes. Where I want to leave you, not leave you, but where I want to launch you right now is I want to ask you, what does the resurrection mean for you? Now, think about that. Think about that. Because some of us, we say the resurrection really matters. It really is important. And it's like, okay, well, how is your life different today because of the resurrection? How, how is it different in the way you treat people of other races? How, is it different, how does it make a difference in how you treat people who think or believe differently, maybe because they're from a different political party? How does it shape and change the way you interact with people whose lifestyles are completely different from yours? Because those are the kinds of questions you really have to answer before you can say the resurrection really matters. Because if the resurrection really matters, it means that we can have new life in Christ. And new life means a new kind of life. And it changes the way we interact and relate with every single human being. And if it doesn't change the way we interact with people around us, then apparently that message has very little power in a person's life. So we have to ask this question because this is the most important question ever asked. What does the resurrection mean for you? Is there a resurrection? And if there is, so what? And now what? Those are the kinds of things that we've got to wrestle with. So today what I'm going to do is I'm going to start, and I'm just going to read for us a pretty long section of Scripture, Luke chapter 24. But today I want to let the Scripture speak, okay? I am going to probably exposit a little bit as we go through it. But I want to let the words of Scripture speak to you and to me. And then I want to take some time and talk about implications, Luke chapter 24, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it. If you got it on your phone, open it on your phone. We'll have it up on the screen as well. Luke chapter 24, I am reading from the NIV 2011 text. It says this, on the first day of the week, by the way, first day of the week, Sunday morning, first day of the week, sometimes people want to know why do Christians worship instead of the traditional Jewish Sabbath, which would be Sunday, why do we worship on the first day of the week, Sunday? This is why. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Back then, when you would bury a person, you would wrap their body with spices in a cloth, a linen cloth. That's how you prepared a body for burial. But, um, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, this isn't what they were expecting. They weren't expecting an empty tomb. They were expecting a body. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men, 
we know to be angels. Suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. You ever been that afraid? They bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Be crucified. And on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered the words of Jesus. When they came back from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven. The eleven are the original disciples of Jesus. Remember, there were twelve. Judas, at this point, had already hung himself. Uh, They told these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others who were with them uh, who told this to the apostles. But they, the apostles, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. That Nobody's expecting a resurrection. Nobody's expecting an empty grave. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself, what had happened? What had happened? He's wondering what happened. He's not expecting, he's not thinking of a resurrection. I know most of you came here today expecting a message on the resurrection. This is not something Peter was looking for. He wasn't expecting this. Now, that same day, uh, two of them... Uh, We're going to a village called Emmaus. Emmaus, a little village uh, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They're processing. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen anything that just devastated you. You know, anytime people go through loss, they have to process it. And and that's what they're doing. they, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. Now, a lot of people wonder about this. Why couldn't they recognize him? Because they were kept from recognizing him. Just That's answer enough. Okay? He asked them. Now, understand, Jesus is not asking a question. Because he's, you know, in the dark on anything. When Jesus asks a question, there's always an intention behind it. In fact, you see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus is always asking questions, probing, bringing people out. So he asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And it says they stood still, their faces downcast. These guys are really discouraged. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, remember, this is Jesus. Jesus knows the things that have been happening in Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who was beaten. Jesus is the one who was treated with contempt. Jesus is the one who was scourged by Roman soldiers, a whip with pieces of bone metal and little pieces of of, uh, like porcelain in it. 
a kind of whip that when it hits your back, it grabs hold of it and rips and tears flesh. They spit in his face. They hit him. They took a crown of thorns and they pressed it down on his head. They nailed, drove nails through his hands, nails through his feet, attached him to a cross. And he bore the sin of the whole world. My sin and your sin. Every bit of it was nailed to that cross with Jesus. He was the one who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the one that had the spear thrust through his side into his heart so that something like blood and water came out. He's the one who was buried in that tomb and left for three days. He's the one, and I'm just going to say this, and you may not buy this, that's fine. I almost see Jesus doing this almost with a smirk, okay? You got here, Cleopas, he's saying, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And the reason I think he says it almost with a smirk, because he knows this is about to be Cleopas's happy day. And so Jesus says, what things? What things? What's happened? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet. Powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priest and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. They crucified him. But we had hoped he'd be the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since this happened. This took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. But they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said. But they didn't see Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. Now, I don't think this is a harsh rebuke from Jesus. I think this is a gentle rebuke. I really do. Okay? So if you don't hear gentleness in my voice, I apologize. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? This verse 27, underline this. Underline this verse. This verse is huge. And beginning with Moses... That's the first five books of the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. By the way, whenever the Jews spoke of Moses and all the prophets, that was their way of saying all the Old Testament scriptures. Or sometimes they would say Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. That was their way of saying all the scriptures. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Would you like to see, would you like to hear that sermon Would you like to hear Jesus take every part of the Old Testament, weave it together so that you really understand how Jesus is at the center of it? Every pastor I know longs, wishes that we could have been there for that. 
as they approached a village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, oh boy, I love this. When he's at the table with them, he took, uh, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And when you look at that bread, what else do you see? You see the hands that are handing you that bread. And I wonder if it was at that moment they looked, they saw the wounds in Jesus' hands and recognized When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. Then their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. How disappointing is that? (laughs) You're going to leave now? We have so many questions. Hmm. Where am I at? Oh, thanks. I'm glad somebody's listening watching they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us i heard one pastor say we all need a really good case of heartburn we're not our hearts burning within us by the way how do you hear the word of god when you hear the word of god does your heart burn We're not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I think this says something about how we're supposed to be reading the scriptures and listening to the scriptures. If our hearts are not burning within us, it it really has nothing to do with the words of scripture. It really has nothing to do with even with the pastor or the preacher. See, the word of God is the word of God, regardless of who reads it. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now remember, it is already evening time. This isn't the day of streetlights. This is not in the day of nice little sidewalks, you know, manicured lawns. They had roads. They were Roman roads, and most Roman roads were very well kept. They were. I mean, they lasted 2,000 years. You can still see some of them today. Okay? Uh, So this would have been a stroll of seven miles after dark. Okay? Now, I don't know about you. I don't know how often y'all scroll seven miles, but that's kind of a long walk, especially in the evening time. So they got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, those with them assembled together, saying, it, it is true, the Lord is risen. He has appeared to Simon. This is what the eleven are saying to the two. Then the two told what had happened on the way when they went to Emmaus and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. You know, everybody's telling their story. Everybody's telling their story of what they've seen. And there's excitement. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. Does our world need peace today? Do they need peace in the Ukraine? Oh. This morning I read another shooting over in Pittsburgh this morning. Uh, We need peace. How about you right now, your life? You need peace? Jesus says, peace be with you. 
They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Sure, someone spontaneously appears before you. Why are you troubled? I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? (laughs) Why are you troubled? Why did doubts rise in your minds? Wait a second. We just saw you crucified. That's why doubts fill our minds. And then Jesus says, look at my hands. Look at my hands. Look. Look at my hands. Look. Look at my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of fried catfish. Sorry. Jesus isn't from Arkansas, he's from Galilee. They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. See, all of this is about me. Now, you know, if a person says it's all about me, we would say a person's kind of arrogant, right? Jesus can actually say it's all about me. And get away with it. Because it's all about him. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. By the way, witness, witness, martus. Where we get our word martyr. Did you know that? Because to bear witness for Jesus in the ancient world oftentimes meant that you did it at the cost of your life. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you, uh, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, between verse 49 and verse 50, We just kind of read on sometimes. Real quick, let me just, this is point of of clarity, point of clarity uh, in understanding. Between verse 49 and verse 50, 40 days pass. We know this from uh, the other three Gospels in reading uh, uh, Acts chapter 1. And what the Bible tells us, between the first day when Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to his disciples repeatedly over 40 days, showing them, in the words of Scripture, many convincing proofs. One encounter was not enough for these guys. They needed to see it again and again and again and again and again. Some people like to say that there was a mass delusion at the grave of Jesus, and they believed they saw him. Well, if that's true, it was a 40-day delusion, okay? And it was, ha- and on one occasion, more than 500 eyewitnesses were present. That's a pretty big mass delusion, especially among people who aren't expecting an empty grave in a risen Christ. 
Uh, when he had led them out, this is 40 days later, after the many convincing proofs, when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, so you've got uh, Jerusalem, excuse me, yeah, Jerusalem's on this hill, Mount Zion. Uh, there's the Kidron Valley, and then you have the Mount of Olives, and then immediately just over the top of the Mount of Olives, it's not a real far walk, is Bethany, okay? It's kind of facing out towards the Dead Sea. And so when he had led them out uh, to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Okay, uh, you know, three things that are real important. I'm going to try to hit these things fast, okay? Uh, I'm going to do my best to hit it fast. Um, And... uh, Yeah, I'll just try to hit it fast. Okay, three very important, very significant implications with regards to the resurrection. Number one is this. The resurrection is the most fantastic moment in human history. It is. It is the most fantastic moment in human history. Very quickly, why do I say this? Very quickly, a couple of things. First of all, simply this. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, he said, if... Jesus is not risen from the dead, then your faith, your faith is empty. It is completely meaningless. My faith is completely meaningless. You are still in your sins, every one of them, and so am I. And when you die, you have a hopeless eternity. And he goes on to say this, we are of all people to be pitied most. We are pitiful people if there's no resurrection. The resurrection is the most fantastic moment in human history. Why do I say it's the most fantastic moment in human history? And that's because, see, some some people say, well, there's no mention of Jesus outside of the Bible which is not true. There are contemporaries who wrote of Jesus, wrote of Christ uh, outside the, the Bible. But they say, well, if you cannot verify it historically outside the Bible, you can't verify it historically, which to me is saying you're automatically, by faith, a blind leap of faith, dismissing the New Testament as being historically reliable. Now, I was a history major in college, okay? I... I so I'm going to be a nerd for a few minutes. I'm going to be a nerd. You don't have to buy this, but I'm going to ask you to chew on it. Okay? Chew on this. Think about this. These saying, these saying, oh, the New Testament, you can't really trust it. It was, you know, it was a bunch of stories that were told, embellished, retold, embellished, retold, embellished, and then years and years later it was written down. When you read through the Gospels, uh, let's just take Luke, for example. Luke is a fantastic example of someone who thinks historically. I was trained in historical method, how to write history when I was in college. I actually had to write history uh, that I had to turn in and to be graded and all that kind of stuff. I had to go. I had to interview witnesses. I had to uh, search court records. I had to go through all this stuff and write out the history. I wrote about the life of, of 
the sheriff of Faulkner County, uh, who had been the sheriff there uh, uh, years before me, before I was there. So I never met him, okay? And so I, I had to do all this research. And, and it's very fascinating because when you read the book of Luke, when you read the book of Luke, you read someone who's a researcher. And because this is how Luke begins his gospel. Luke is writing to a guy, his name is Theophilus. And uh, he's probably a Roman official because he addresses him as most excellent, which was usually like a Roman governor or some kind of provincial officer. And so he says, in uh, Luke writes this to Theophilus, he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Okay? Many people have taken on this task. Okay? We've got Mark. We've got, you know, we've got uh, Matthew. We've got John, who actually wrote after, uh, uh, who wrote after Luke. But there were probably other writings as well. Okay? And um, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. So Luke is appealing here to eyewitness accounts. Uh, So just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. By the way, Luke was not himself an eyewitness. Luke is the only author of Scripture who was a Gentile. Did you know that? He actually was not a historian by training. He was actually a doctor by training, but very historically minded. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, And many people believe that Theophilus maybe underwrote the writing of the Gospel of Luke. Also, Luke was a protege of uh, the Apostle Paul, in case y'all didn't know that. So anyway, he says, so, so he says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that, that you have been taught. From this text, we see that Luke interviewed eyewitness accounts from those who are witnesses of the events of Jesus' life and ministry. These were not stories that were handed down for generations, as some people say. These were eyewitness accounts that he had collected. He carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Those are his words. Careful investigation. This isn't written by some, I don't know, some country bumpkin. This is someone who was a very intelligent man, studied in a university. He was a doctor. He was an educated person. He went, he did his research, just like I had to when I was a a history student. And then he wrote out an orderly account. It's very fascinating when you read the Gospel of Luke, if you pay attention to this. And my guess is, because I'm a little bit a little bit of a history nerd, I'm not saying I know history better than any of you guys. Some of you may know it a lot better than me. But, but, but it's just kind of fascinating the kinds of things that will show up in the Gospel of Luke when he writes. Because one of the things that Luke does when he writes is he likes to give time stamps of when things happen. So when he talks about the birth of Jesus, he says, in those days when Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor over the you know, Roman world, in the days when Quirinius was governor in Syria, he gives a time stamp before talking about the time of the birth of Jesus. Then later, later in Luke chapter 3, when it's the beginning of the public ministry of John the Baptist, 
who had been a relative of Jesus. And when he begins to write about the public ministry of Jesus that started shortly thereafter, what does he do? He gives a time step. In the 15th year, not the 14th year, not the 16th year, the 15th year, he's being very specific. Okay? He's writing like a historian. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch was, or Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee. Uh, his brother Philip was Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. He is, he is writing this in a historical context. He's giving a timestamp. It was also during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. It's like, okay, just in case I'm not being specific enough, this is everything that was going on at that time when John began his ministry and when Jesus began his. The resurrection is the most fantastic moment in human history. It comes to us as history, but it's divinely inspired history. It is history, but it is the Word of God spoken in a point of history to a specific group of people at a specific time, but also speaks to all people of all times. And is speaking to you in this very moment, in this very time. The resurrection is the most important historical event, the most important event of all of history. The question is, is it the most important event in your life? Let me say that again. It's the most important event in all of history. But I'm going to ask you again. Is it the most important event in your life? Is it? Because if it is, everything about Jesus should shape everything about you and me and every single relationship that we have. In every social interaction we have. In everything that we value in our lives. It should completely overhaul our lives and reshape us. It is the most important, most fantastic moment in human history. Number two, the resurrection is the key to the understanding of all Scripture. Jesus, you know, when he's talking to the two, and he says to them, you know, guys, you're kind of like being knuckleheads. You're so slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And, and there's this one preacher, I've heard him say this, is he says, a lot of us are Dalmatian Christians. We're Dalmatian Christians, meaning that we believe the Bible in spots, okay? We believe the Bible in spots. I, I, I believe this spot. I believe this spot. But we ignore the rest. He said, a lot of us are, are Dalmatian Christians. We believe the Bible in spots. And, and when you believe the Bible in spots, you live a dog's life. We have a Dalmatian approach to the Scriptures. But all of Scripture speaks to Jesus, to his life. You know, I wonder about this. I wonder, did Jesus begin with them in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Did Jesus go all the way back to the garden after the man and the woman sinned against God? You remember the serpent 
You remember the taking of the fruit that God had forbidden? And then God speaks to the serpent. And he says to the serpent, he says, um, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, he says, uh, he, he's putting a curse on the serpent. He says, I will put enmity. You know what enmity is? You know what an enemy is? When two people are in enemies, they have enmity between one another. And, and God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. Between your offspring, literally Hebrew word seed. Very important to understand that. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, and her seed. Interesting choice of words. Hers, she's, women, don't have seed. Sorry, this feels kind of weird talking about this with men and women. The seed is what comes from the man. When a man and woman are in that moment of intimacy in marriage, okay? But here, God is speaking of the seed of a woman. Very fascinating. I will put enmity between you serpent and the woman between your offspring your seed and her seed he oh interesting he is singular he the seed of the woman he the seed of the woman will crush your head serpent this future seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you will strike his heel jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit, no man involved. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, the seed of a woman. I wonder if Jesus explained that to these men the first time they were like, oh my goodness, I never noticed that. You're right, Jesus. I'm going to listen to more of your sermons, okay? You know, I, I wonder if he just took them through story after story after story through the Scriptures and showed them how all of Scripture speaks to Jesus. The resurrection is the key to understanding all of Scripture. Did I say that? Yeah, yeah. Number three, number three. The resurrection is the most powerful message in the world. Now, why do I say that? The resurrection is the most powerful message in the world. I say it for several reasons. Number one, it is only in believing in the message of Jesus and his resurrection, that a person can be saved. The Bible says that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It is the most powerful message in the world because it has the power to save you and me. By the way, when we are gripped by this message, this is how powerful it is. When we are gripped by this message, the resurrection gives us When our hearts are gripped by the cross and the resurrection, we cannot remain silent. When we are gripped by this, we cannot remain silent. It's not a strategy or even training that we need to be better witnesses and evangelists for Christ. It is conviction. It is conviction. It is conviction. Jesus is risen. The grave is empty. I mean, if you won the lotto, wouldn't you kind of be excited about it? Tell a few friends. Then why wouldn't you be excited about the resurrection? It's the best news in the world. 
the man, the woman, fully convinced of the resurrection of Christ cannot be silenced. Our message is too powerful. You might as well try to silence thunder. You might as well try to, I don't know, rein in a hurricane or to snuff out the sun. This message has power. It can't be contained. It can't be contained. You know, it's so fascinating. The early Christians were called witnesses, martus. And the message was so powerful that early Christians joyfully died proclaiming Jesus. And that's how we got our word martyr. It comes from the Greek word witness. When the reality of the resurrection grips us, we proclaim Christ not out of obligation, but out of joy. Did you get that? When the resurrection grips us, we proclaim Christ not out of obligation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about joy. It's like, I don't know, yesterday Caleb and his new wife came over and we had breakfast together. And I remember when they were engaged and what do engaged women do? It's like they talk like this, you know. They want everybody to see the ring, okay? They can't keep it to themselves. That's what happens when we are gripped by who Jesus is and what he's done in the resurrection. Oh, the resurrection is the most fantastic moment in human history. It is the key to understanding all of Scripture, and it is the most powerful message in the world. The question is, is your life different because of the resurrection? Have you given God the title deed of your life? Because that's what you do when the resurrection is real. When the resurrection is real, it reorders how you use money. It reorders how you think about sex. It reorders how you think about every single value in your life. It changes how you use your time. It changes how you view relationships. It changes the way you interact with people of other races. It changes how you interact with people who may think different politically. It changes everything. It changes the way you read your newsfeed. You read it with a little bit of skepticism. You read the Bible like everything depends on it. See, it changes everything. Now, the question I have today, and this is one of the concerns I have sometimes as a pastor. I get concerned about two things. I get concerned about people who say they believe in God. But it's kind of a casual belief that makes no difference. Because I'm concerned if some of those people may not be saved at all. So I get concerned about that. The other concern I have is for people who are true believers in Jesus and they are haunted by feeling and afraid that maybe their faith wasn't real. So what I don't want to do is haunt someone who needs to find encouragement. But at the same time, I don't want to treat everybody in this room like they are true believers. Because there was one. There was the twelve. There was one. And then there was the eleven. And I think in every church, there can be a Judas. 
in every church, there can be someone who has gone along with what everybody else has been saying, but they're not really with the group because they're not really following Jesus. So today, and here's the other thing is right now there are people watching from YouTube. There are people right now, by the way, hi guys. There are people watching from YouTube. There are people watching from Facebook. By the way, and this is going to be there for a long time. It's going to be on the Internet. Someone could see this moment right now, days later, weeks later, months later, maybe even years later. And they need this moment. Today, I just want to ask you, have you put your faith, your hope in Jesus? I'm going to repeat for you a prayer. It's kind of a long prayer. It doesn't need to be this long. But I would say it represents, I think, a lot of what was in my heart and mind, the best I could understand it when I committed my life to, to, to Christ. My prayer when I committed my life to, to, to Jesus, basically something like this, Lord Jesus, I need you. And why would I pray that? Because I do need him. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Now, why would I pray that? Because I have. Okay? Not just a long time ago. I think yesterday. All right? I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I am guilty of sin. I am under your coming judgment. This is what happens for those who don't believe in Jesus. They're under his coming judgment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross for me. He went to the cross for me, and he went to the cross for you. Thank you for going to the cross for me, for bearing my sin, for dying for me. I believe you and you only are the Savior of the world. I believe that you are risen again and that you have defeated the power of sin, death, and the grave. Today, I put my hope in you. I trust and believe in you. Only you can save me from my sin, death, and final judgment. I ask you to save me. I ask you to forgive my sin. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. I ask you to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Amen. For some of you, you probably prayed something like this a long time ago. You have made a commitment of your life to Jesus, and it was a real commitment. Hallelujah. Praise God. And when Jesus comes again, you're going to be with him forever and ever. And you're not going to live a perfect life this side of eternity, okay? But your heart is in the right place, and you're moving in the right direction. That's some of us here today. But there's always the possibility of someone who's never really said that prayer or something like that and meant it. And so what I'm going to do is normally we, do, we like to close our eyes, bow our heads when we pray. At least a lot of people do. I'm going to ask you to pray with your eyes wide open. I want you to look at the words, and we're going to go through this. And if this prayer is your prayer, I'm going to ask you, encourage you to pray it silently. Silently. You don't have to pray it aloud. I did this with a group of kids a couple weeks ago. They all prayed aloud. It was over at the Groves Groves Apartments. It was wonderful meeting with the kids, the 11 kids. I don't know how many of them, all of them prayed. I don't know who meant it, who didn't. God knows. But if this is your prayer, Please feel free to pray silently to yourself and to God. And what really matters here isn't so much the words you say, it's the attitude of your heart. Let me lead us. Lord Jesus, I need you. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. 
I am guilty of sin. And I'm under your coming judgment. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross for me, for bearing my sin, for dying for me. I believe you, and you only are the Savior of the world. I believe that you are risen again and that you have defeated the power of sin and death and the grave. Today, I put my hope in you. I trust and believe in you. Only you can save me from my sin, death, and final judgment. I ask you to save me. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. I ask you to make me the kind of person you want me to be. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come on up. Uh, As they're coming up, let me just say a couple of words here to you if I can. If you prayed this prayer today and you meant it, uh, if you prayed this prayer today and you meant it, I want you to know this, that today God saved you. Your sins are forgiven. The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No shame. Today, nothing and no one can ever separate you from the love of God. Today, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Today, you are not perfect and you never will be. You're going to blow it from time to time. But understand this. God is doing a work in you. This is what the Bible says. He is doing a work in you, and he is going to continue that work until the day of Christ Jesus. Right now, Jesus is preparing a place for you. And one day, one day, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again for you and me. And we are going to be with him. We're going to be with him forever. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. just want to say good morning again. And uh, what a perfect day to be in God's house. Thank you for joining us in celebrating Easter. Thank you for joining us in celebrating our risen Savior. Um, You know, the Bible is about separation and connection. In fact, the Easter story is about connection. It's about Jesus um, reconnecting us to God. So we know the value of connecting um, with God and others. And here at Sonoma Valley Church, we believe that one of the measures of being a disciple or being a follower of Jesus is that we're growing in love for God and for others. It's vital to have consistent interaction and connection with one another. We have the opportunity to do that. We have the opportunity to do that every week by joining a small group or getting involved in a ministry where you can connect with others So I want to invite you to do that. And you can find out about those opportunities on our Solano Valley Church app. Um, 
Hey, Nick, I just saw you. Good to see you and your family. I'm sorry, that made my heart happy. Um, <laughs> um, so we have an opportunity for, um, for you to do that. And so, again, the app is, um, you can get it on Google Play or at the App Store. Download that and check it out. Check out some groups that are going on and ways to serve. So in, in, in addition, we invite you to stick around after the service today to um, grab some refreshments, to get some coffee, another great opportunity to connect. And so speaking of coffee, um, we have another way, a cool way of connecting that's available um, with our coffee with a pastor. So this Wednesday at 4 p.m. at Journey Coffee, the one on Chadbourne Road, we have lots of journeys around here now, but the one on Chadbourne Road, um, Pastor Gary and Pastor Matt will be available to meet with anyone um, who would like to join them. And they're pretty cool guys. So if you haven't met with them for coffee and you want to, they're available. They're going to be there at 4 o'clock. So maybe maybe you prayed that prayer today and you want to talk to them about it. Join them. Maybe you have a friend that you want to bring to church, but church isn't, uh, they're not quite ready for that. But maybe they'll come to coffee. Bring them. Maybe um, you just want to talk about something you heard in a message. Come. Come connect with these guys. Um, Four o'clock, Journey Coffee. Um, You'll be glad you did. So right now we are going to worship through our giving. And um, before we close out the service, and this is just, we say worship through our giving because it truly is another way to worship. You see, God has given us everything that we have. Everything. There's not a thing that you can think of that God has not given you. Whether it's your home or the person sitting next to you, it's a gift from God. And this is an opportunity where we get to give back because he's given so much. I mean, he's given us Jesus and our salvation. So um, there's, there's many ways in, that you can give, but financially there are five different ways that you can give. You can give, visit our website at www.solanovalley.org forward slash giving. You can tap the Give button on that SVC app. You can send a check to 1307 Oliver Road, Fairfield, California, 94534. And you can text the word GIVE to 707-883-3018. And finally, if you're here in person, there's a mail slot in the back that you can drop your offering in. Um, It's behind the sound booth. So I just want to thank you for being here this morning, um, for worshiping with us. And uh, thank you for your kindness and for your generosity. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm so, so grateful that you chose to spend your Easter Sunday morning here with us. And I want to invite you to stand. We're going to worship together one last time. Before I do that, or before we do that, I want to mention, if you look over to your right, you'll see this beautiful, beautiful photo uh, booth display. that Joy and Jen and Chriselle put together. Um, and Joy, would you, I know I'm putting you on the spot here. Is there anything you'd like to say about that or, or uh, any instructions or anything? Yeah, just go over, bring your phone and get a family picture. Sometimes it's yeah. hard to get family pictures and we just thought it'd be fun to have a little fun spot to, you know, have a group of friends or your family to get your picture. So make sure you get your family picture over at the photo booth. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Y'all did a wonderful job. Very good. Dave Tyner said he's available to have his picture taken with you for $5 a shot. 
little selfie with Dave. Got to pay for coffee tomorrow somehow, right? <laughs> All right. Our God is alive. Let's sing that together one more time. Here we go. Thank you again so much for being here.